Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another exciting episode of That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens, sitting in the studio of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, sitting across the broadcast desk. From me, as usual, is Pastor David Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who might be listening to the program. <clears throat> Time across the Eastern Caribbean, and in our studios is 7.30, and we are excited to spend the next 90 minutes with you. And not only for you to be able to hear what is being taught for the next 90 minutes, but for you to be able to interact with us. Before we get to our first question tonight, and if you were listening last week, you remember that I mentioned that I would start out this episode by letting you know where you can find more information about the book of Enoch. And if you go to episode 125 of That's Truth, it's entitled Response to Listener Questions. And inside of that episode, we dis- Pastor discusses how reliable the books of Enoch, Jasher, and other Apocrypha books are for Bible study. Again, that's episode 125. If you've never gone to our archives, there's two ways you can do it. You can go to our website, www.radiolighthouse.org. Scroll down to the second picture that you see, and right in the middle, you'll see a circle that says podcast. Click on that. And then there will be a link for That's Truth Archived podcast, and you can go to episode 125. Or you can just go to Google or your favorite search engine and type in That's Truth Podcast. Choose your preferred provider, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and then go to episode 125. Thank you for making time on this Tuesday evening to listen to That's Truth. Thank you for encouraging others to tune in. Like I said, we still have almost an hour and a half, so go ahead and encourage others to tune in. Pastor, our first question for tonight comes from Antigua. Good night, Pastor. Uh, I have a question. Is it wrong for Christians to eat pork? Aren't we no longer living under the laws of the Old Testament? And I'm sorry, that doesn't come from Antigua. It comes from Trinidad and Tobago. Well, I um, I think everybody's familiar with the Old Testament. And we know that under the Old Testament economy, when we lived under the, uh, the covenant of law, uh, there were restrictions relative to the eating of pork. And this was part of the dietary laws of Israel. These laws uh, were enacted basically to teach spiritual truth about uh, that which is clean and that which is unclean and to draw a clear line between Israel and the pagan nations around them. Um, when we come to the New Testament, we're now in a new dispensation, uh, a new economy. It's called the economy of grace. 
And we have many passages in the New Testament that indicates that those dietary laws that were binding on Israel under the economy of law are no longer regulatory in terms of the believer today. Uh, I might point out as well that it's not just pork. Uh, the Old Testament restricted you from eating any animal that didn't have um, uh, didn't have scales, for example, uh, one that um, um, had to have a, a cloven um, foot as well. Uh, and not only that, there were certain re- regulations about clothing. You couldn't put certain colors in certain types of materials with different types of materials. There were also farming regulations that you couldn't mix certain gr- uh, seeds with different seeds. Uh, and then there were, of course, ceremonial regulations relative to the uh, the religious services. Now, I don't think anybody today would would would, qu- would say that we can't mix clothing. And we can't put silk with cotton or whatever. Or I don't think anybody would question that, for example, we can't plant certain seeds with other seeds. Otherwise, most of the farming in modern time would have to do done away with. But there are still people who hold to this concept of the uh, eating of the pig. Uh, I want to show you from the New Testament that these regulations that once pertain under the Old Testament economy are no longer applicable to the believer. And I'll ask Nathan to read a few verses for me. Uh, Nathan, 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 11. 1 to 4, sorry. 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 11. 1 to 4. Now the Holy Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. And verse 4, For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused if it, it be received with thanksgiving. I think that is very, very, very clear. Now, it doesn't specify uh, poor, but it does specify that all meats are now open to the believer and all all, all, all meats are good, basically. Uh, so whatever was pertaining onto the Old Testament economy is no longer applicable today. Uh, every believer now on living under grace now can enjoy the benefits of God's creation. And remember that these restrictions came way after um, um, during the time of Moses. Uh, so it is very, very clear that even before Moses, permission was allowed to even eat uh, the sow, uh, the pig. But under the Mosaic economy, it was put restriction in place. And again, there are reasons for that. It's to make a distinction between the clean and the unclean. Every aspect of Israel's life was determined to teach them holiness, that they had to be different. And God used their own practical uh, life to reinforce this concept that there's something clean and unclean, whether it be the dietary laws, whether it be laws dealing with the clothing, or whether it be laws dealing with ceremonial activities, or even civic law. Everything was designed to teach a distinction of Israel from the nations around them. Another uh, New Testament passage is um, Colossians two fourteen to 16. Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, reads as follows. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Uh, Through what verse? Uh, Verse 16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day 
or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. In other words, all of these things, he'll go on later and say, these are shadows of things to come. Uh, these are no longer binding on the believer. Uh, and it's very clear, let no man judge in respect to, to meat or to drink. So no one has the right to mandate to you what you can eat and what you can drink. We've been now given the full liberty to enjoy all the blessings of God's creation. Uh, that is clearly taught there in the book of uh, Colossians. If a person has a, a conscience bothering about eating pork, they should not eat pork. Uh, but again, if my conscience doesn't bother me, and I feel that I have the Christian liberty to do that, uh, I don't want anybody restricting me either uh, to enjoy the blessings that God has given to me. So I think it's one of those principles where the, the, there's no clear mandate in the New Testament that stipulates that we should not partake of uh, pork. And it's very, very clear that it's a matter of personal decision-making and Christian liberty. This is the Christian manifesto, that we have been given certain freedoms, and therefore we can exercise those freedoms. However, later on in the book of Romans and also in Corinthians, Paul says that if, it, if meat, eating meat offends my brother, I will eat no meat. So there are times when I forego my freedom and my liberty for the welfare of a brother and sister who is really deeply offended by my participating in something. It doesn't mean I can't do it, but I must look after his welfare. But uh, clearly there's no restriction on that. Another passage, uh, Nathan, is Romans chapter 14. I'd like you to read verse somebody's ver- verse 2. Verse 2 says, For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Then read verse 4. Who art thou, another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden, for God is able to make him stand. Verse 10. But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And then verse 12 is another verse that goes. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Last one, verse 13. Let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Yeah. I, I, how do you read all of that? Because clearly uh, Paul is talking about people judging each other in, respar- in respect to what they eat. And Paul's point is very, very clear. Uh, we're not in that position to, to judge people. We have to let people to use their conscience before God. And he goes on to say that, you know, the thing that really matters is just remember that we're all going to stand before God and give an account. So give that brother, that sister the liberty uh, if they are convinced from the Scripture that they have freedom to enjoy the benefits and the blessings of, God, of God's creation. Uh, I have no right to judge them that because they're eating meat, they're damned, or because they're eating meat, they're sinning. Uh, Paul is saying, let that person uh, be dealt with before God, and, and that's the way to, to, to really look at life. He goes on later on in the same passage, in ver- look up verse 14 to 17, Nathan. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Now stop there for just a moment. In the context of what Paul is dealing with meats in the, in the whole passage, and Paul has said, I know, you know no, there's nothing unclean. You know, God never created anything unclean. That's the point that is being made. Uh, these things were made objects of uh, to differentiate between clean and unclean for the sake of Israel. But if a man's conscience, Paul says, it is unclean, it becomes unclean to him, therefore he must not participate. So Paul is just saying that your conscience really should guide you in these matters and not other people's opinion. Go on and see what he says. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, 
now walkest for whom Christ died. Let not your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. That's the one, that's the one I want to get to. The essential thing about Christianity, about the Christian faith, it's not about what you eat and what you don't drink. Really, yeah, those three things, righteousness, living a righteous life, being at peace with God, being at peace with men, and enjoying uh, the the Holy Spirit and the, the blessings of God. That, that's the gist of the... So why why now disrupt all of that by uh, subjective judgment that a person shouldn't do this and shouldn't do that? And that Paul is saying, you know, the emphasis is in the wrong place. Let us focus on what God is concerned about, righteousness, peace, and joy. However, he did say that we need to be very careful that if what we do offends our brother, a real Christian brother who's offended, we ought not to deliberately uh, do that because we actually can wound his conscience. Paul warns about that. So there are times when, if, for example, if I uh, went to a believer or I invited a believer to my home who is aware doesn't eat pork, or does it, there are some believers that do that, not just uh, Seventh-day Adventists, I'm not going to serve him pork deliberately knowing that it will offend him, uh, I will find out exactly what he wants and, and try to cater to that. Uh, it could be that he visit my home and I inadvertently, not knowing, offer him that and he might be offended, then I would have to apologize. I didn't know that. But I don't think we do things deliberately to offend people. It's making here that we have liberty and freedom and there's nothing unclean in itself. So I would say to the person who sent in the question, there's no one and there's no biblical mandate in the New Testament that restricts you from enjoying uh, your pork. If you had some good ham during the, the holiday season, I say to you, blessings. <laughs> now, you were referencing we shouldn't we should be careful not to offend a true brother. Do we need to be as careful about not offending a unbeliever? Well, I would I would say it depends. For example, if I have a neighbor and I am trying to witness to him and um, he's not a believer, uh, I just happen that he's come under certain teachings, and as a result, he doesn't take certain things, he doesn't eat certain things. I need to be aware of that as well. If I invite him to my home, I'm not going to, well, I know I learned he doesn't eat, what, um, lobster. I'm not going to serve lobster knowing that d- deliberately. So even though he's not a Christian, I'm not going to unnecessarily offend him because the ultimate goal of a believer is to influence that person for Christ and to win him for Christ. And if you create an offense that um, in some way block your access to them to witness, I think you destroy your opportunity. So it doesn't just relate to, uh, to that. But I don't want, I don't think it is right for people to impose their own subjective beliefs if they feel convicted about something. I don't think it is right to impose that. Uh, uh, and that is why, for even the Seventh-day Adventist, I had one visit my home, or I had a good Seventh-day Adventist friend. If he came to my home on Christmas, I wouldn't serve him ham because obviously he doesn't eat that. Right. So I think we got to use discretion. But the key thing here is not to offend a real sincere brother, and even the unsafe person. Your goal is to win him, so you don't want to offend him unnecessarily. I recently heard of a situation um, where. A woman didn't believe in wearing jewelry, Mm -hmm. and a new believer threw away all of her jewelry in order to not offend that person who wasn't necessarily a believer. Is is there a biblical basis for that, that I should throw away all my jewelry? 
Uh, I am not too sure I would throw it away. I might pawn it or no, sell it or something, yeah. but there's no, there's no basis for that. And I think, when again, uh, the person that you're trying to win, uh, if you are very convinced um, that, you know, that this really, really is a genuine offense, that they really feel that is not the proper thing for Christians to do, there are a few ways you can do it. Sometimes you, you need to give a proper interpretation of that passage because Paul is talking about extravagance. He's not talking about uh, wearing one piece of jewelry. He's talking about somebody parading and, and uh, really uh, displaying, uh, you know, you come with five rings on one hand, five rings on, your, five, five rings on your toes, et cetera, et cetera. Then you've got a gold chain around your neck and one around your waist one around your ankles, etc. That's what Paul is talking about. He's just talking about using good judicial judgment. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you go back into the Old Testament, you, you'll find that uh, the Jews wore jewelry. I mean, there's no question about it. Even the men, by the way, it might strike some people. Men wore earrings as, as well. Mm-hmm. That might be strike some people as, oh, I didn't even know that. Pastor, the, I'm going to need uh, you to leave this. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is that he's really dealing with the matter of dressing extravagantly, um, mm-hmm. even even braided hair. I mean, who today complains about braided hair? But again, you've got to remember how people did that. They made the hair a mountain, as a word. You know, all was a big, big, big mountain of hair, etc., uh, etc. Et and Paul is saying, you know, that's, that's extravagant. I do feel, though, in the church that sometimes people need to be very, very careful. I think that modesty is a biblical uh, standard, and I think that uh, a lot that goes on in terms of dress in, in, I wouldn't say in our church, but in many, many churches that I visited, uh, I think there's a lot that's desirable in terms of uh, modifying the dress and trying to be less the center of attention and let the attention go more on the Lord. But um, I, I wouldn't throw my, my jewelry. I, I could probably remove it but to actually throw it away, I think, is, is going to an extreme. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 7.48 on this Tuesday evening. Thank you very much to the individual who sent in that question from Trinidad and Tobago. We appreciate you listening from the Southern Caribbean. Pastor, we have a couple of questions that have just come in uh, from Antigua. Is it possible to explain a little bit about the books that were excluded from the Bible? Many argue that the Bible is incomplete or vetted, and there are books that women wrote that were excluded. How does the Christian witness to someone who is of that thought, and is there a book that you can refer me to to please help me with this? Yeah, I can I can refer you to Josh MacDonald's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. That, that would give you an explanation. There's also one by Norman Geiser called The Introduction to the Bible. Uh, uh, that that would also give you some insight into it, uh, but I I would I would say this that a lot of the reason why these books were not included and these are not books that these are books that Christians have known for years and all the theologians and all the people that did Bible translation have known this for years. None of those books that are not in the Bible were ever accepted uh, by Jesus. None of them, none of them were ever included uh, in the Jewish uh, canon as well. Uh, so th- th- and then the other thing is there are a lot of acronyms in those books. In other words, there are things, references to things that didn't happen around the time that it happened. Uh, there are also a lot of historical mistakes in those books. There are there is good moral teaching and some good spiritual teaching. No question about that. But in order to have it to be to, to, to have it something that's morally correct and ethically correct and yet historically wrong. Uh, that clearly cannot be right. That's why we believe that in the Bible is not only the spiritual truth and the moral truth that's correct, the historical truth and the scientific truth in the Bible is also correct. Otherwise, we have a, in, a book that is not infallible. We've got a book that has a lot of errors in it. So I would recommend those uh, those two books, which is very, very helpful to give you um, an understanding. There's also another book by 
um, Norman Geiser called the Encyclopedia Bible Problems that you can look up on the internet and that would answer some of those issues as well. Um, I think those are three three books. I, and then there are books on, by Voss, uh, Voss, V-O-S, books on uh, archaeology uh, and stuff like that. They would also go into that explanation relative, relative to the, these other non-canonical books in the Bible. Thank you very much for the very practical question. Oh, from uh, one other thing, Nathan. If you have a good systematic theology, like Thiessen or one by Burkroff, um you would also have, um, they would also deal with this under the matter of canonicity and explain why these books were totally. So if you've got a good systematic theology book, it normally deals with, a, or a good introduction to the Bible uh, by Harrison is another good book that you can, you, can, you, can, you can find. So if you, you know, any of those books would be very, very helpful uh, in, in helping. Our next question uh, comes from a caller from Barbuda. Can Pastor Murphy please explain Isaiah 65, 17 to 25? It's talking about the new heavens and a new earth. And I will read that passage. If you're wanting to follow along in your own Bible, we're in Isaiah 65, verse 17 to 25. For behold, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former shall not be remembered, nor come into mind. But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. There shall be no more thence any infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die an hundred years old, but the sinner, being an hundred years old, shall be accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. And they shall not build and another inhabit, and they shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble. For they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord and of their offspring with them. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together and the lion shall eat straw with the bullock. And the dust shall be of the serpent's meat and shall not hurt nor destroy in all the holy mountains, saith the Lord. Yeah. Uh, if you read the p entire passage, uh, you'll see that this has to have a reference to the Millennial Kingdom. I'll explain to you why. Um, in this whole particular passage, there are certain things that are mentioned that the only way it can harmonize uh, with this is not the new heaven and new earth that is going to be eternal earth as mentioned in the book of Revelation. It's very, very clear because of some of the things that are stated here in this passage. First of all, this has to do with the earthly city of Jerusalem. You find that in verse 18. Uh, it has to do with babies being born in verse 20. Uh, it mentions that people are, are going to die uh, in verse 26. But the average lifespan is going to be very extensive. When a man dies at 100, it would seem as though he was cursed because there would be longevity. Now, we know that during the eternal state, there's no birth, there's no death. 
So clearly this has to do with the Millennial Kingdom. The other thing, verse 21, houses are going to be built. Vineyards are going to be planted. Uh, and then um, also uh, we find in verse 25 that the predatory animals are going to be domesticated and tamed and become peaceful. It mentions about the lion, the wolf with the lamb, and the lion uh, will eat straw like an ox. Even the dead is going to change. And then uh, verse 27, talk my holy mountain. Anyone that goes through the Bible and see the holy mountain always refers to the hill on which Jerusalem was built. So this has to do with the ancient, uh, the, the, the prophetic promise that God would one day set up a millennial kingdom that's going to last for a thousand years, and he will reign from Jerusalem. This is what, now the, where people get distracted because they talk a new heaven and new earth, because that's also mentioned in Revelation. But just like, this is a, a type, of what will become the eternal state, and you find that throughout the Bible. All the take in the, in the Old Testament, there, there are two comings, and there was confusion because the Jews couldn't understand that Christ would come first and die as a sacrifice, and he'd come back as a as, as a land, the tribe of Judah. They always lose sight of the fact that there's not one coming, but there are two comings. For example, there are two Pentecost in the Old Testament. You had the Pentecost, where it's called the feast, uh, the feast of weeks, where they had the celebration, it was the in gathering. Then we learn in the book of Acts, that the real Pentecost, that was foreshadowing the real Pentecost where God would then gather his people. And then uh, there are two Passovers, the Passover in the New Test- Old Testament and the Passover in the New Testament. Everything in the Old Testament pointed to something in the New Testament. And this, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, the eternal state. The, the, uh, the, the, uh, the type of that is the millennial kingdom. So just like there's going to be a new change in the, the heavens, there's a new change in the earth because the new, there's a new order uh, in terms of, of, of death, in terms of longevity, in terms of the uh, the fact that the animal diet will change. So all, not only is it going to be a change in the animals, but it's going to change the whole environment. In other words, there's a new world coming called the Millennial Kingdom. But when that is completed, if you read Revelation chapter 20, we go into the eternal state, which is the final order in which there be no dying, there be no crying, and uh, there be no death. So this passage basically has to do with the millennial kingdom that's going to be established. Now, and by the way, this is where Bible, the consistency of Bible interpretation is so important not to end up in contradictory language uh, because we know that in the eternal state there's no death. Here you've got death. We know that there's going to be no building of houses because the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven and that becomes the abode of people. So they seem similar, but one is pointing to the other because one is a type of the anti-type. And that is a consistent way. You remember some time ago we had a guy who asked the question, what is this wedding feast? Yeah. Because in his mind, he's thinking of the wedding feast that's going to come with the believers. But again, when you look at the passage, even though the word wedding feast is used, it has no, no reference to the, the coming wedding feast between the believer and Christ. It had to do with the fact that this is just part of the order in which you go to the wedding feast when he came back. It had to do more with duration of time, etc., etc. So this is a passage that is strictly dealing with uh, the Millennial Kingdom. I would like to point out to you, uh, Nathan, if you could put uh, look at Second uh, Peter chapter 3. Uh, read 7, 10, 13, 11, and 13. This is where there's going to be an actual new heaven and new earth because the old heaven and earth, old earth is going to be burned up eventually. Read, read that, please. Second Peter chapter 3, verse uh, 7. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Uh, read verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, 
in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So clearly there's a coming time when the earth itself will be burnt up, and there'll be a new heaven. And then look at verse, um, you were verse what, what, 10, yes, no? Uh, verse 10, yeah. Yeah, verse 11. Verse 11, Seeing then that these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? And then verse 13, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Again, that's the promise. And then if you look quickly at Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, this is the eternal state, the new heaven that is promised after the earth is completely uh, consumed. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Again, uh, you see, if you don't, if you don't distinguish between these these concepts, you end up in total confusion. And you say, but the Bible is contradicting the Bible. But no, if you understand that there's always a type and an anti-type, every single New Testament truth has an Old Testament type. And that's why the millennium is a type of the new heaven and the new earth. And unless that fact is borne in mind, you end up with prophetic confusion. I've never noticed that last phrase, and there was no more sea. I just heard a couple of fishermen cringe on the other <laughs> side of the radio. <laughs> Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 7.59. Make that 8 o'clock on this Tuesday evening. Thank you for making time to listen to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The name of the program is That's Truth. We're broadcasting on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, online at www.radiolighthouse.org. And you can also join us for this program on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and then you can comment your question. If you have a question, the phone line is open and waiting for you to call. You can call 1-268-462-7420. That's the number to call if you want to ask your question live on the air. 268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 1-268-782-1454. Again, WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454. Pastor, we have another question that has just come in from Antigua. Good evening. What does the Bible say about the backslider being rebaptized? Um, I can't think of any reference right now that any backslider was ever um, rebaptized. Uh, that would only come about, I believe, within the Seventh-day Adventist Church, if I, I know clearly. I know the Adventists who have been baptized about five or six times, because every time you backslide, you're lost, and you've got to get saved again, so you've got to get rebaptized. There's no biblical precedent for that. You can't find one. There's only one reference uh, to the rebaptizing of anybody. That was when Paul met the uh, people at, um, I think it was in Ephesus, the people who were the baptized, uh, disciples of John the Baptist, they apparently had gone to Jerusalem, had become familiar with John's teaching, uh, but in the interim period, they'd returned to their homeland. And uh, when Christ, meanwhile, Christ had died, he was crucified, etc., etc., and when Paul met them, uh, the only baptism they knew was John's baptism. That had to do with baptism of repentance. John's baptism is not the same as Christian baptism. And then the Apostle Paul explained to them the way of Christ and that the Messiah had come, he had died, etc., etc., and then John bapti- uh, Paul baptized them in the name of the, the Lord Jesus Christ. These are people who were already uh, Old Testament 
believers, as it were. And then, so they were not properly baptized, and they had to be rebaptized. But there's no precedent in the Bible for a person. It's assuming people, the person that makes that statement is assuming that once a person backslides, they're lost. I think that's where that precedent comes from. So if you're lost, you're going to get saved again, you're going to get rebaptized. We don't believe that. I believe a, a believer can backslide and he can come back to the Lord and be restored to the Lord, but there's no need for him to be rebaptized. So there's no biblical precedent for rebaptizing of a person who is saved and who falls and who uh, backslides and then comes back to the Lord. Uh, there's not one single example of that in the, in the New Testament. That is all we have for questions right now, so go ahead and send in your questions. We are going to jump into a new topic, a very practical topic that I know applies to each and every one of us. It applies to me, Pastor. It applies to you. And this is a topic that was suggested by a listener. And I, again, let me encourage you, if you have a topic that's on your heart or on your mind, go ahead and send it to us. We would be glad to consider it as a topic to be discussed. It's the topic of practical ways for born-again believers to live in the 21st century. In other words, how do you practically live according to God's Word in the year 2021? And this listener says, I used to be around a Pentecostal group and am still struggling with the influence of their teachings. I know that I was taught wrong. I struggle sometimes with making decisions because there is a part of me still looking out for a jolt from the Holy Spirit if I'm entering into a bad deal or taking the wrong route on something. I recently entered a bad deal, and it was simply because I was just expecting some feeling to come and warn me not to do it. Pastor, do you have any opening thoughts or ideas as far as um, introducing this topic? Well, we're, we're talking about um, basically uh, decision-making and what principles would govern uh, decision-making. But I hope everybody recognizes that as long as you're alive and as long as there are choices to make, it means that we're going to have to exercise some discernment in respect to the decisions we make. So decision-making is really inevitable. Um, Fortunately for us, most of the decisions that we have to make are kind of routine. Uh, they're not very, very consequential in, in a sense. They're very trite and trivial uh, and often repetitious. But the truth of the matter is that in, in life, you come to situations where there are far more complex decisions that need to be made, and it becomes obvious that you need some kind of a framework uh, of principles that you can use to make that uh, decision. And I would say that when you're in a quandary like that and you're in a bind like that, uh, it's not just being smart that is going to provide the answer. You need wisdom, and that wisdom really is what you get from God. So I think crucial to every uh, uh, this matter of decision-making has to do with uh, garnering wisdom from the Lord in respect to what decisions need to be made. Pastor, we have a caller from Bendel's Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Good evening to the panel. Hi, good evening, Mr. Williams. How are you doing, sir? Oh, not too bad. How are you, sir? Fine, sir. How <coughs> can I do it? Uh, doing well, doing well. Okay. Uh, but I'm going to I have a scripture I want to, want to do help me out there with. I can remember it right now because I've been for it tonight. I can find tell. I don't know why. What, what is it? Yes. Uh, Give me about it. alcohol. Uh-huh. About, about a king who doesn't drink alcohol or a strong drink, but gives something to a man that has a problem. Yeah. That every drink and he forget his problem. Yeah. And you know, in the Bible, say that no drunk can enter the kingdom. Right. Of heaven. And then, what that verse is saying, live 
a man that is heavy habit alcohol that he will drink and forget his problem uh-huh. so I find that kind of strange so, and it's going to help me out with that one well uh, I, I number one I'm going to have to find a passage and maybe deal with it more exhaustively next time but fundamentally uh, the one that has to do with uh, the one with kings uh, he lets you know that it's not wise for a king to drink strong drink and the reason for that is uh, the king is the leader of the country he has to have his, 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 his mind in order he has to make decisions that would affect not only himself but affect the entire country so he has to be able to make good judgment uh, so and, and, and alcohol impairs judgment and discernment as a result uh, a person who is under the influence of uh, alcoholic beverage uh, cannot make rational decisions as he should and often make decisions uh, that he regrets very often it's like the guy who drinks and then the next morning he has a spitting headache he's vomiting all over the place uh, I mean if he had sat down and thought about that he would think twice so when you're under the influence of alcohol your your your, your judgment is impaired and therefore you can't be depended on to make those kind of judgments the other past, other section I can't remember all of it uh, I think it says give alcohol to him that will perish if I'm not mistaken I gotta double check that but it's not, it's not supporting the idea of using strong drink uh, that's not the biblical counsel that is given. It is always told in the Bible that uh, you should not be engaged with, 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 with strong drink because it, it, it leads to immorality, it leads to um, break up of the home, the family, uh, it leads to fight, you just name it. And of course, it's a health hazard. If a person is drinking alcohol and smoking at the same time, he has lost 10 years of his life. I meet people all the time, especially I meet a lot of Syrians, for example, at these, uh, let's sell these used tire places. Every time I see them, they're puffing cigarettes. And I always point to them and say, boy, 10, li- ten years of your life is, is gone. It means that you're not going to be around for your kids and for your wife. And they, they, pretty much most of them would take the cigarette and throw it away and say, I'm done with that. I come back next week, they're still doing it again. <laughs> but really, in truth and fact, it's not encouraging the Bible because of the lethal, the effects it has uh, on a person's life. Uh, but I will, I will, I will. Um, either you will have to call me and give me the passage because I, I, I'm familiar with it, but I don't remember the exact wording of it. So I'm going to have to use the concordance to find out. And I promise you, that I'll deal with it in more detail uh, next week. But because I don't have it before me, I can't really, um, you know, I can't really interpret it as it before without having. It. I look for it too because you have to somewhere in Proverbs. I, I can't remember it. I can't remember yeah, it. I think it's, it's, it's got to be somewhere in Proverbs because Proverbs is one of those practical books that really deals with a lot of these uh, current practical issues. So I'm sure it's in Proverbs somewhere. But to put my hand on it right now, my mind on it, I can't do it because I don't have the, I don't have a concordance with me and I don't have a Bible that has uh, that in the back of it. But because I'm familiar with the passage, I'll search it up and investigate it and I'll re- give you a better uh, response next time. But that's the basic what I can do at this point in time. Yeah, yeah. And uh, one more question. Sure. Uh, if, you, if you have a brother that and you're trying to correct him, and maybe the way you talk to him, he get offended. Mm-hmm. Uh, does it right that you apologize and approach him again? Yeah, I would do that. I would. If, if now it depends on your mannerisms because you might mean well and I might mean well, but the way I do something might not be effective. And if you're genuinely concerned about the person and you think that he's really genuinely offended because of the way you approach him and the way you uh, you dealt with it, uh, I would be. I would man up. 
and I would bite my, I would swallow my pride because my concern is his welfare. And I would say it's something to the fact, you know, I, I, I wasn't aware that the way I approach you, you were offended by that. But uh, I'm so sorry if I offended you. But I was really concerned about your welfare. And I really wish we could discuss this issue because um, uh, I, you know, I, I'm just very concerned about you and whatever it is and go on from there. But I think an apology done in the right way. Um, I, I, it would be very strange if he uh, would not uh, be prepared to entertain you sharing with him. You know, we think that when we apologize, people think that we're small. But people think we're very, very big when we apologize. I, I can guarantee you that because it's not the way of the world. Uh, people's pride get in the way and they say, you know, I'm not going to apologize. But for Christian, because of our concern for the welfare of the person, we don't mind swallowing our pride, and because pride is not something the believer should get involved in, we should always be humble. So I, w- I would do that. I would make a necessary apology and uh, and do it genuinely. Really, you know, if you really said it the wrong way, or asked the wrong way, or maybe you know, sometimes we ask people questions at the wrong time, and there may be people there in public that it becomes embarrassing. Uh, sometimes we 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 take some liberties we shouldn't take. Uh, so I think that that's, that's in order. I don't think there's a problem there at all. I think we we should do that as Christians. So so what about if the person take what you tell him wrong? Uh, if the what? What about if the person take what you tell him wrongly, and you know you're on the right track? Well, again, if again uh, you need clarification there. Uh, what, I mean, what did you say or what did I say that the person misinterpreted? It? Uh, if he has misinterpreted, and we all misinterpret things, by the way, uh, say to him, that's not what I meant, you know, that's not what I meant, and I'm so sorry if you interpreted it that way. Uh, but this is, and then you clarify what you meant, and why you say what you meant, uh, and what you said what you said. I think anybody that's, re- look, we all are, all have feet of clay. We all make mistakes. We all say things we shouldn't say. But when a person really uh, is willing to say, look, I'm so sorry that you, I, I, uh, uh, what, what I said offended you. And, uh, but you know what? Uh, I, I don't think you fully got my in, what I intended to say. And uh, could I share you what I, what I meant and what was my interpretation of what, what I said? I think if you approach that way, a simple way, uh, and uh, you should get some, you should respond fairly positively. There are people, by the way, that are very difficult. No matter what you do, um, nothing happens. You still must try. You still must try. Um, and I'm not going to guarantee you that you're going to be successful, but try. Because, again, if you've got genuine interest in the person's welfare and you think that what you have to say would benefit them in some way, I think it's right and proper to uh, inject your opinion there. If they, if they value opinion, they'll he- heed to what you're saying. Okay, thank you very much. Lo- once, you, once you love your brother and the person you love, uh, <laughs> look, love solves a lot of problems. If a person is really convinced that you love them, you care about them, you can say the worst thing sometimes, but they, they, they know when you love them, when you care about them, and I think they can respond uh, differently. Okay? God bless. Okay, thank you very much. You're welcome, sir. Thank you very much. Yeah, have a good night. Thank you for listening from Bendels, and I have jotted down uh, Proverbs 31, 4 through 6. That's the verses about alcohol, and we'll okay. pick that up next Proverbs week. Proverbs 31, uh, 4 through 6. Okay. We will start out next week's episode 
giving more detailed explanation of that. And if you are interested in hearing uh, two full episodes on the topic of alcohol, you can go to uh, That's Truth episodes 76 and 77. They're entitled The Most Abused Drug, Alcohol, and Should a Christian Use Alcohol? Those are two of our most listened to episodes. Pastor, I believe... um, at least one of them has over 2,000 people who have listened to it online. Uh, we have a question that has just come in. Could you please explain why in the New Testament that a woman is required to cover her head? Thank you to the individual who sent in that question. Well, again, that's found in the book of Corinthians. I think it's chapter 14, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and Paul gives several reasons for that, by the way. Uh, and it's, it's specifically talking about a married woman covering her head. Uh, and and uh, Paul is saying that uh, when a woman is in the service, uh, that the covering is a symbol that she recognizes her husband's authority. Uh, that is one reason that is given. Uh, and then he goes on to point out that the fact that God intended this to be so is that God gave a woman a lot of hair as opposed to a man who didn't have less hair. So nature itself uh, is an indication how God intended in that in that respect. And then Paul gives another reason. He says of the angelic hosts who observe the service in the church, and the angelic hosts know there's a hierarchy of order that God has established uh, on earth, uh, somewhat parallel to that in heaven, because you've got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and uh, they give you an order in, in that holy rank. And in the, the in this earth, there's also that ranking in terms of the home. You've got the husband as the head, and the wife. Uh, who is to submit to the head. And that's the reason Paul has has given, uh, if you read the passage, why this should happen. Now let me just tell you where the problem lies today. The problem lies today because people interpret that passage to believe that the covering is a woman's hair, and therefore she doesn't need to have another covering. But um, that's not my interpretation. As a matter of fact, Paul said if she doesn't have her hair covered, it's as though she was shaved. So if, you know, the people say that Paul was dealing with people who had the head shave and therefore Paul is saying stuff like that. But again, the argument there doesn't make any sense to me at all. Because if her hair is already shaved, Paul is saying that as though it was shaved. I mean, that clearly is mumbo-jumbo, to be honest with you. But I do believe that there are about five good reasons that are, that are stated in that book that would justify a married woman having a covering on her head. I do not push this in our church because I came into a setting where this is not was not taught and I think they were taught the other way that uh, Corinthians were dealing with people who were prostitutes, women who shared their head and Paul is now dealing with that matter. I don't hold that view but it's not something I should divide a church over. Um, it's something that you have to you have to know what, what, what wars to fight and what wars not to fight and when it comes to essential doctrine, fundamental doctrine, I, I would I would uh, dispute that greatly, but because of the, the, the setting in which I found myself, I don't really push that because it can be very, very divisive. When I was in Seleucia, as a pastor there, uh, there were churches that women would, would wear a hat. And when all ladies went to that church, well, in Seleucia, you wear hats, to be honest with you, most of the churches. But there were a few churches that uh, didn't wear hats. Um, when we or anybody go to those churches, they would wear hats. Uh, just a given. Uh, even churches that didn't wear it and women would wear it, wear hats. That was not to be offensive. In St. Lucia as well, churches have been split over jewelry. Hmm. I'm surprised, split over jewelry uh, and those kind of issues. And again, that goes back to the teaching that people have. And uh, it's unfortunate 
that that has been the case, but you've got to use wisdom to know what is really a major doctrine that is worth fighting over, dividing a church over, and one that is, is that you 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 hold to, but at the same time it's not worth splitting a church over this particular doctrine. All you can do as a pastor at that time is to keep on teaching. Keep on teaching and teaching and teaching. And when you come to that particular passage, give the reasons why you, you take your position. And sometimes that might lead the church to say, you know what, maybe we ought to do this. But uh, you've got to use good judgment in those matters. Is it possible to swing to the other extreme where, uh, and I'm going to use this illustration because it's come up, uh, I've seen some women's hats, not necessarily in our church, but walking through town after church uh, where it's like a whole rose bush on top of their head, you know, very, very gaudy and drawing attention yeah. just to where, is yeah. that what Paul was No, expressing? again, I think that would be extravagance. And even, even that Paul would would, be, uh, would not endorse. I mean, uh, the simple covering in the New Testament was a veil. Okay. okay. Uh, but I do feel that, you know, what we got to be avoid, whatever we do, is to stop drawing attention to ourselves. And whether that be a hat or a tight pants in a service or a tight skirt or a blouse that is uh, below the breast line or something, uh, all of that is this. When we come into God's house, we come to worship God, not to look at somebody and not to be a fashion show, etc., etc. So I think it all goes back to modesty, whether it be a woman or a male or whatever. I think we've got to go back to the idea that when we come to church, it's not to draw attention to ourselves. We are there to serve God and to, to worship Him and not to call attention to ourselves. If Thank you to the individual who sent in that question, and if you are interested in listening to an episode that discusses that in more depth, you can go to our website, radiolighthouse.org, scroll down to the second picture, click on the circle that says podcast, go to the archived podcast, and episode number 11 is entitled Head Coverings for Women, and the majority of that topic is discussed in that episode. Time in the studio on this Tuesday evening is 8.20. Maybe you're listening to this on Saturday afternoon as a rebroadcast. We are glad that you have made time out of your weekend to listen to That's Truth. Be sure you tune in next Tuesday, Lord willing, and join us for the live episode. If you have a question, you can call and be put live on the air. The phone line is open and waiting for you. Call and be put live on the air by calling 1-268-462-7420. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 1-268-782-1454. Pastor, a follow-up question about the baptism of backsliders. What about a person who is baptized at birth and is following Christ as an adult? Would it be practical to get baptized again after coming to the understanding of what baptism is? No, that is not baptism. That person was never baptized uh, biblically because he is baptized at birth. He doesn't have a clue what's going on. He's not believed. You believe people who believe get baptized. This guy was baptized before he even believed, so he doesn't have Christian baptism, period. So clearly if a person was, um, was baptized as a baby or sprinkled, that's not Bible. Uh, that's not biblical baptism. You can't find that anywhere in Scripture. So a person like that coming to faith in Christ now and really understanding what it is to believe in Jesus Christ, now he has to be baptized in the biblical uh, after the biblical pattern. So yes, a person who was sprinkled, a person who was baptized as a baby, that's not that's not Christian baptism. That's church baptism, and not Christian baptism. Believers' baptism is the uh, comes and follows. 
when a person put their faith and trust in Christ. Go back to the book of Acts. When they believed, they were baptized. When they believed, they were baptized. When they believed, they were baptized. Not, they, not that they were baptized and then believed. Uh, you're, you're reversing the whole trend. Unfortunately, there are churches that do that. The, the, I think the Anglican Church does that. I think the Catholic Church does that. And I think sometimes even the Presbyterian, some Presbyterian yeah. do that. But again, that's not Christian baptism. Um, don't be governed by what is modern practice or what is common practice. You have to go to the Bible to find out what is the biblical standard of baptism, who gets baptized, and what is real uh, Christian baptism. Uh, so I would suggest to you, don't take my word for it, go into the book of Acts and uh, even go into the Gospels and you'll see that the only people that were baptized were those that believe. A baby cannot believe because he doesn't even know he's lost. Uh, so I think that that should bring some clarity. A WhatsApp question that has just come in. Are we descendants of Jews or Gentiles and which law should we follow, the law of Moses or what Jesus preached? Well, it's clear that uh, we are not Jews for sure. We're Gentiles. The only three groups recognized in the Bible, whether you're a Jew or Gentile or you're the church. The church is made up of both Jew and Gentiles. But uh, unless you are one of the descendants of Abraham, uh, you are not a Jew. You may be a spiritual Jew in the sense that you have the faith of Abraham, but you're not a Jew in the sense that you are of the lineage of the Jewish nation. So uh, we are Gentile Christians, uh, with the exception of the Jews in America and maybe the Jews in different parts of the world and Jews in Israel. Those are people who are from the the direct lineage of the Abrahamic line, so they will be Jews. But the vast majority of people who are Christians today are Gentiles. We are Gentiles. So that brings the other question. Whether a person be a Jew or a person be a Gentile today, we don't follow the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law governed under the Old Testament economy. But when a person becomes saved, whether he be Jew or Gentile, under the New Covenant, which is the new, the new principles that you find in the New Testament, uh, that now the moral principles of the Old Testament are repeated in the New Testament. So they carried over. I can show you that nine of the commandments given in the, the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. The only one that's not repeated is the Sabbath. So that's why uh, part of the reason why we don't follow the Sabbath and we observe Sunday as the Lord's Day. But generally, and there are good principles, moral principles in the New Te- Old Testament that really uh, carry over. For example, when Paul is talking about the support of pastors in the book of Timothy, Paul said, you know, in the Old Testament, you shouldn't muzzle the ox. Now, again, the reason for that, when the ox is working, the ox ought to partake of the, the, the grain. But that's a principle related to agriculture, but yet Paul carries that over as a principle that relates to a person who labors should partake of that which he has to provide for. So that's a biblical principle. Uh, so you've got to see where the principles are, but generally speaking, we're now living a new dispensation. We're under a new covenant. It's called the covenant of grace, and we live not according to law any longer. We live according to the principles of Christ, which we have in the New Testament, and which are elaborated and explained in the, new, in the epistles uh, by Paul and Peter and John. Pastor, a text message from St. Kitts Nevis. Good night, Pastor. Why is it important for believers not to lose their crown or reward in Revelation 3.11? Revelation 3.11 says, Behold, I come quickly. Behold that fast which thou hast. Hold fast to that which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Well, again, you go back to Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, and then I, uh, Second Corinthians chapter eleven. It's not the judgment seat of Christ. Whether we like it or not, uh, we are serving the Lord, 
And part of that service is that one day we are going to be rewarded for that service. And that's what we, he's concerned about. And, and there are five different crowns mentioned in the, in the New Testament. The crown of life, uh, the crown of righteousness. Uh, uh, I forgot the... can't remember all five of them off my... Off my one off for my, soul winning? Yeah, one for soul winning as well. But again... Uh, that's what it's talking about. You don't want to lose your rewards. Uh, and, and, and so it's just like, you know, we see when they have the Academy Awards and you see what a big thing it is. And imagine that the entire universe is there and you are being called forward, called forward by the Lord and He's going to cr- give you a crown. You know, it, it might seem uh, kind of humanistic to think in this ways, but we all uh, appreciate when we receive something that expresses a token of the work we've done, and and uh, that is what it's promised in the New Testament that we're not serving the Lord, uh, we're not serving the Lord for rewards. Don't misunderstand me, but we, in the process of serving Him, He has promised that He's going to give us some rewards, and and one of those rewards are these crowns that are mentioned, five of them in the New Testament, and so that's for the that's for the reason uh, we we want to be recognized uh, for our service for Him, and we don't want that everybody's receiving a reward. And guess what? You're not getting one. If you think that is strange, you go to any function where they're having a graduation, and you see that there are 10 people who are graduating, and nine get reward, and one doesn't get it. Believe you me, that's very, very embarrassing. That's why uh, uh, John talks about not being ashamed as well, not being embarrassed as well. We don't want to be embarrassed. We want to make sure that uh, our reward is would be there for us. And then if you read Corinthians chapter 3, it talks about we're going to be tried. And we're going to be rewarded, whether it be wood, hay, or stubble, or gold, precious stone, et cetera, et cetera. That's the comparison that's used uh, will determine what kind of reward. So the believer never uses his eternal life. That's the point that people need to understand. The judgment seat of Christ is not about losing your salvation. It's about losing the reward uh, that follows as a result of your salvation, what you've been doing, your deeds, and your works you've done for him, which is going to be rewarded. Another text message. Christ says he will make the over make you overcomers of the world a pillar in the temple of my God in Revelation 3.12. Where will this temple be, in heaven or in earth? Well, if you read the passage and you go back to um, the book of Revelation, chapter 21, it's talking about the temple in the new order, uh, the new eternal state. Uh, And uh, if you read there, you find that God is going to be the light of the temple, uh, in, in that temple, New Jerusalem, basically. So that's what it's talking about. It's not talking about an earthly temple. It's talking about the in the new. Um, and again, it's that that is really symbolic. I mean, you're not really made a, a pillar as such because you know what a pillar is, don't you? A pillar is something upholds something, but that means that you you would be an outstanding person, as it were, as part of the kingdom of God. That's what it's talking about. Uh, another question that's come in. Explain who or what is the New Jerusalem coming down from heaven? What is this all about? Well, again, you've got to read Revelation chapter 21 to see exactly what it's a city. And the dimensions are given. It's 1,500 miles high, 1,500 miles wide, and 1,500 miles uh, long. Uh, there is a... I forgot how many square feet that is, but I forgot how many, uh, if you take uh, uh, per, 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 uh, per the square feet footage, sorry, and you, there, uh, there is a uh, three decks, as it were. Uh, calculations have been done to find out how many among the people that can hold, and, and I forgot the figure right now, but it's billions, basically, using the 1,500 miles long, wide, and, and thick, etc. But if you read it, uh, it's very, very literal, 
the dimensions are very, very, very little, and uh, the, 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 the gates are mentioned, etc., etc. There's no reason to speculate that this is an allegorical presentation. This is a literal uh, dimensions that are given, and uh, this is a promise that God has made. And that goes back to Abraham, who sought for city not made with human hands, a city coming down from God. You remember that from the very book of Genesis? So this is a city that was promised even in ancient times. is going to come to fruition and fulfillment when our Lord returns, and uh, the eternal state comes in, then Jerusalem descends from heaven, and either suspended above earth or sits on the new earth, that's what the Bible is talking about. Read Revelation chapter 21, and you'll see all the minute details as to what is involved there. So, Pastor, if I'm listening and I want to make sure that I am a Christian or right with God, what do I have to do? Well, the thing about it is that uh, there's only one way to get to heaven, and that is through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But there's one, uh, two preconditions for this acceptance of Christ. The Bible says you've got to repent and you've got to put your faith and trust in Christ. So you've got to learn that your problem, basically, is the barrier of your sins between you and God. The relationship is severed. You're alienated from Him. You need to be reconciled to Him. And the way that reconciliation was brought about is that He sent His Son to become a man. Because man had sinned, He died for human sin. But because He's God, He also can take hold of the hand of God and take hold of the hand of man and bring the two together. And so He brings about reconciliation. So you need to put your faith and trust in Christ, repent of your sins. And when that is done, uh, the Bible says you become part of God's family, you're adopted, and you become His child. I cannot emphasize too much. It's not about the church. The church is a vehicle and an agent of bringing you to faith and trust in Christ. But you being part of the church in terms of becoming a member of the church or going to the church is not going to save you. It's not about baptism either. I can't emphasize that too much. That's not how you're saved. You're saved because of your faith and trust of what Christ did on the cross. It's not about confirmation either. Those are things that follow salvation. Uh, and it's not about just being a good moral person uh, as well. Uh, you read the uh, story of the a man that went up to prayer and he can itemize all the, and you know, I never did this and never did this and never did this. I did this and the God said, you know, you're proud and you're boasting. And then a man came up who would, um, wouldn't even look to heaven and he beat on his chest and said, Lord, be merciful to be a sinner. And Christ said, that man goes down justified. So it's about putting your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.32. Pastor, for the individual who's listening and says, but Pastor... I've been relying on the fact that I'm going to church or that I've been baptized, and now you're here trying to disrupt everything. Why can't I just hold on to uh, those things that I've been trusting in? Well, listen, truth always disturbs, and uh, never forget that. Uh, but it's the only thing that set you free. He said you should know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Look, there are a lot of people, take the Muslims, for example. Don't you think a lot of people believe that because they got their faith in Muhammad, they're going to heaven? When you have these jihadists blowing up planes and committing suicide, why do you think they do that? Because they're promised that if they die on the behalf of the Muhammad's cause, they're going to get to heaven and get seven virgins. I mean, think of the deception of that. Think of the Hindus who believe in reincarnation and, and uh, believe that there's no Christ, there's no God, there's no, they don't even think that there's anything called sin. They believe that karma will solve all that problem. Think of the millions of people who are in darkness. Now, would you not rather know the light and see the light than to be kept in darkness than to discover the ultimate end that uh, uh, you made a big mistake. Uh, and that's why we got to tell you the truth. Now, if you want to get that truth confirmed, go to the Bible. We're not asking you to take our word uh, because I'm a pastor, uh, therefore what the pastor said is infallible. 
if you can't uh, confirm what I'm saying in the Word of God, well, just ignore what I'm saying. But if you go to God's Word and discover what I'm saying is true, I'm saying to you, you're in trouble. It's about time you open your eyes, and as the Bible says, come out of them, come out of her, as it were, and find a good church that preaches the Word of God and uh, believes in the Scriptures. If you are in Antigua and you are looking for a Bible-preaching church, we'd like to invite you to Grace Baptist Church. That's the church that Pastor Murphy pastors. It's located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace. Sunday morning, Sunday school starts at 9 a.m. Service follows an hour later at 10 a.m. And then on Thursday evenings, we have prayer meeting and Bible study, which alternates every other week. This week, Thursday at 7 p.m. will be prayer time. Yeah, Nathan, let's make one correction there. The Sunday school that we're having currently is for the adults and teenagers. Mm-hmm. We've had to suspend our um, children's Sunday school, which we had on which normally held on uh, Sunday evenings because of the COVID situation. Uh, we haven't decided as yet how to restart that. And when do we start it? But uh, if you were talking, uh, we're talking about Sunday school for teenagers and adults. That's on, still going on on Sunday morning. Uh, you have to wait for the information about children coming to Sunday school. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is eight thirty-five. Pastor, a question that's come in: Shall a believer pay a tithe if they are going to a church for two years and are not a member? Well, I would think that whatever church you're going to, uh, that would be the proper place to, to give you tithes. Uh, that would be my suggestion. I mean, but why would you wait two years and uh, not become a member? You're not satisfied with something that's going on in the church. Uh, I mean, you, you should have had in two years is sufficient to survey the land, as it were, and come to an assessment of whether or not you want to be part of that ministry. But I would think that if you're going and you're, you're where else would you put your tithe? I can't, I can't figure that one out. I mean, where, why, why, what would you do with it if you if you're going to a church? Uh, why would you uh, want not want to give your tithe to that church? I, I can't figure. I'm trying to put in my mind what would be the thinking, what would be the rationale, uh, uh, and and uh, so I would that would be my, my my thinking. If you're going to the church, even though you're not a member, you're going to give your tithe somewhere. I would think that I would uh, that would be the proper place. You, you're benefiting from the spiritual ministry there. I would hope. Uh, otherwise, you would not be there for two years. That would be my 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 way of thinking. I I can't say. You know, let me just say this. Uh, people got to be very very careful. The the time goes into the the storehouse. Uh, you don't have the discretion to say it's, you know because it's the Lord. So I therefore I can just distribute it as I, I want. You find a ministry. If you're dissatisfied with that ministry, find a ministry where you are comfortable where you are being fed by the Word of God and where you can get involved in ministry and uh, invest uh, the resources in that, in, in that capacity. That would be my recommendation. Pastor, if I fail to pay my taxes, the government's going to, at some point in the future, ask for the back taxes. Is the same true for tithes and offerings? I, you know, I would say to uh, let this be a matter of Christian judgment and individual judgment. I, I can't I can see of cases where a person really uh, run into some deep financial problem and could not meet their obligations. I can see that happening. I am not too sure that that is perceived as a, a stealing. Uh, I don't see it that way. It's not it's all something that is deliberate. It's an emergency that's happened. But if the person's conscience bothers them and they feel as though, listen, I, I, this is God's, 
listen, God is greater than your conscience, and you must not go against your conscience in that regard. So I would say to the person who feels guilty about that, the, the biblical and proper thing to do would be to uh, to deal with it from your conscience level. And if you feel guilty about that, well, make up make up for it. Lots and lots of questions that are coming in tonight. Thank you for each question that's been sent in. And if you have one, you can go ahead and send it in via WhatsApp or text one two six eight seven eight two one four five four. Pastor, a WhatsApp from Antigua. What does the Bible say about women preachers? Is it against God's will for the role of women in the church? We do have a program that we did on that, and Brother Nathan could probably give you the uh, the, 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 the the number of the program. Look, I, I know that it's becoming quite common today uh, that they've got a lot of women preachers. I, I do not support it. There's no biblical warrant for it. I, anybody that reads the book of Timothy uh, would see and the qualifications that are given in the book of Timothy. And not only that, uh, Paul gives some reasons why a woman should not exercise the role of authority uh, over a man. And, and Paul gives ground that in the creation story and the fall. Those things don't change. It's not a cultural reason that Paul gives. Paul says God designed that when he made man, he made man first and that was not an accident. Paul said this is one of the reasons why uh, a woman should not have authority over the man in respect to the church and in respect to the home. Very, very clear the Bible says that because of the order of creation. And then Paul says the fall uh, where Eve was deceived through conversation and listening to the enemy. Uh, as a result of that, God has ordained, because of that deception, that she does not have that, that authority because she has that proneness to deception, especially when it comes to uh, conversation. I, I, look, I, I, don't know if, uh, I don't want to let you into a secret, to be very honest with you, but women are, are very susceptible uh, in the air communication. Uh, women love to talk. And uh, most wives will tell you that they don't. Their husbands don't talk enough. And normally, when they're dating, they're great uh, conversationalists. They, they, uh, they, they talk. But then suddenly, when they get married, uh, they don't seem to have time. And when they find somebody who listens to them, and uh, they feel that that is somehow s- symptom uh, symbolic of the fact that they really care, and that's where many of them become susceptible to infidelity. And it is all based on the matter of communication and, 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 and conversation. I'm not saying that in every case, but that is where it happens. A woman would not normally get involved with a man unless he feels that she cares, and the way that he cares, and the way that he shows his care for a woman is normally that she listens and she talks and she chats with him. Men know that, and they exploit it again and again and again and again. If you've got a, you've got a con man over there that seemed to have a lot of women, I can guarantee he's a good talker. And you women ought to be on the guard <laughs> in that regard. Uh, but uh, Scripture makes it clear that uh, the qualifications are not there. Husband of one wife. Uh, it's impossible for a woman to have a husband. Uh, to be, In other words, she cannot be a person to have one wife unless you become now the transgender, and unless you follow the LBGT, which is completely condemned. It's an abomination of God for that to be happening. So there's no biblical support for any woman being a pastor. And what is becoming very common today, by the way, is that the, ma- the man is the bishop and the wife is the pastor. That, to me, is the most atrocious thing I can think about. And I think it's a violation of the biblical principle because in the Bible, the word bishop and the word pastor are the same. They're synonymous. Um, one bishop, it means he's the overseer. Uh, the word pastor means that he's shepherd. So it has to do, and the other word that is used as synonymous is the word elder. That speaks of seniority. But they all relate to the same thing. 
So there's no biblical grounds for a woman being a pastor, and it cannot be supported in the Bible. And it is being practiced today very commonly. It's going from one denomination into another, but it stops at the Baptist denomination, at least at the independent Baptist, where it stops. And there's no apology to make for that either. If you are interested in hearing a episode on that topic, you can go to our That's Truth archive of the episodes and go to episode number six. Episode number six, it's entitled Roles of Men and Women in Church Leadership. Full 60 minutes on that topic. Thank you very much for the questions that have come in so far. Pastor, would it be wrong if I'm on a one of these smaller islands and I'm struggling finding a church that is preaching God's word as you might hear it taught on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse and the only church that I'm able to find in my area has a woman as a pastor, what advice would you give? That's a really, uh, should be simple, but it's, it's much tougher than simple because if she, she's, she's teaching the truth, you don't have a place to go. Uh you know, my gut feeling is that I wouldn't want to be there because of the biblical restriction that's laid down in respect to that regard. It's not God's will. But I also recognize that there are certain, there are always exceptions. When I say exceptions, something is tolerated even though it's not God's uh, direct will. For example, if I might use an example, when we, the missionaries came to our country, um, the male that came, he was deported back to uh, America for certain reasons and the two ladies stayed on as missionaries uh, there were churches were without leaders etc etc uh, for some time and they were part of the training process to prepare help the the young men to become pastors and they played that role they, they played a teaching role to teach the younger men but as soon as the men came to the age where they were able they took the subordinate position, which I think is the, the proper method. We have a missionary that just came from Moldova uh, some time ago, I think it was a year, a year and a half ago, who's doing a lot of training. She's a woman and training men. But again, she's not she's not assuming that role of male leadership. As long as men are available, she moves herself and let them fill. I think that's the proper thing to do. Pastor, we have a caller from Antigua. Thank you for calling. Go ahead with your question, please. Yes, um, I want to know um, if the Lord, if God, uh, Jesus, you know, the totem one, if they can hear um, heavenly people praise, like um, I will call Peter a heavenly man, I will call Mary a heavenly woman, and all the rest of the disciples and them, they are heavenly people. And I want to know if um, God can answer the prayer. Sir, I would like to say to you that the only prayer that we are advised in the Bible is to direct our prayer to God through Jesus Christ. There's no reference anywhere in the Bible of anybody praying to any man, any woman. These are just human beings, and we ought not to direct our prayer to any man or any woman. Only God deserves worship. Only God deserves prayer. So that that is biblical. Again, you don't have to take my word. Go through to the Bible. Read the Bible for yourself, and you'll see that there's not... If you can show me one time in the Bible where anybody prays to any person other than God, to Jesus Christ, uh, it's not there. All of this is part of a system, and this is where it's very difficult for people who have been taught this way for a long time, and they've been brought up on it, because they themselves, when they were taught of it, they never went into the Bible to check it, and they assumed that the person who told them that, the priest or the pastor, 
that they had trusted what they were saying, but there's no biblical grounds for it. So I think that is one of the, the grave mistakes we have today is that people leave everything to second-hand information, and the most important decision you'll ever make has to do with your soul, yet people are not prepared to take and investigate for themselves, to search the Bible. You know, when Paul went to Berea and Paul preached, Paul is a great apostle. The Bible said the Berean took their scriptures and compared what Paul was saying with what Paul, what, what, what the Bible was saying. And Paul says, call, Paul commends that in the Bible they were more noble than those at Thessalonica because the Thessalonians didn't do that. So the noblest thing you can do if, as a person would be to take the Bible as the Word of God and it is the standard above every man, every woman, including me. If I say to you something that's not in the Bible, you should discard it, totally discard it. Because the only standard we have of what is right, what is good, what is truth, is God's Word. And that must be the standard by which every man lives, including myself and yourself. So anytime you hear anything on the program here that you think is not, that you can find is not in the Bible, totally disregard it. Okay, um, the question, um, again now, when, um, John was preparing the way to, um, to meet, um, Christ, who he was preparing and how he, what he mean by preparing the way to meet Christ? Well, the prophet Isaiah had said that when the Messiah comes, God will send one to go ahead of him to prepare the hearts of the people to let them know the Messiah is coming and to let them know what the Messiah would be like. So his job was to go forth as a preacher to proclaim that the kingdom of God is coming and that the king is coming because the prophetic word said that the he was sent forth a forerunner, a person who goes before. It's like a herald who goes before a king and said the king is coming, the king is coming. So that's what he was doing. John was preparing the people's heart by calling them to repentance. The Messiah is coming. The Son of God is coming. The way to prepare for Him is repent of your sins and prepare your heart for Him to come. That was a, that's why John was calling people to repentance. And the fact that they were willing to repent, John was saying, if you're willing to show genuine repentance, let me baptize you. So when they were being baptized, they were saying to the people around them, I acknowledge the Messiah is coming. I'm preparing for the Messiah by repenting of my sins and looking for that Messiah to come. That was John's job, to point to Jesus. Remember that people want to know, John, are you the one to come? And John said, not me. As a fact, the one that's coming after me, I'm not even worthy to unloosen his shoes because, of course, John was a man. This one that is coming, the Messiah, is God. So that is what his job was, to prepare the way for the Messiah to come. Yeah, so um, what about when Jesus Christ called his disciples and them now, when he sent them out into the world, this is a, then the people, then they were telling people about him, what kind of good That's exactly they're doing? Correct. That's exactly what our job should be, including mine. We have yeah. to go into all the world, and we're supposed to tell, because listen, this world is a doomed planet. Whether you know it or not, we're not here forever. Uh, this is a preamble to eternity. You have been given 70 years, and I 70, 75, whatever it is, but it's not going to be longer. Most people are going to die between 72 and 75. That's the average lifespan. And we, that's a reality. Some people might live to 100, but that's the exception to the rule. Most people die between 72 and 75. And we are given some time to prepare to meet God. And what we've got to do is to understand we have a short space of time to reach people. So people who don't know the Word, who have never heard of Christ, uh, we've got to try to reach those people. That's where we have missions. And we send out, we support mission at our small church. Every single ye uh, month, send out, I think, like something like $3,000 to missionaries all over the world. We're trying to, to reach people with the gospel. And that, so that's what the Christian is supposed to do, sir. 
Yeah, okay. So um what you will call those kind of um prophets stuff for today, although they're dead. Are they as many people? Well, uh, the prophets they are still human being are the spirit in whosoever no, are they the devil are um, the Lord yeah they're with the Lord because we are, t we, we are told that, that Christ took captivity captive when he was resurrected he, he took the saints with him out of Hades so they're in heaven but there's no communication between people in heaven and people on the earth and we are never told anywhere in the scriptures all prayer must be directed to God through Jesus Christ it's never to Peter, it's never to Paul, it's never to Mary, it's never to Martha, uh, never to St. John. You always pray to God in the name of Jesus. That's the only biblical mandate we're given. And I can guarantee anybody that anyone that prays to any person other than God, no matter how much prayers you say, they don't go beyond the ceiling because God only hears prayer that comes to him through his son, Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says. That's not what Pastor Murphy says. That's what the Bible says. Yes, they are not good work for um, Jesus Christ. And you know, when God said that he's going to reward them, uh, he, he's going to reward them because they done a good job. And there was man and human being who ever accepting the word of God. Yeah. But what about if they pray, if they hear your prayer and they pass it off to Jesus Christ? You wouldn't call them heavenly people accepting not. They do not. Um, Sir, could I, could, I, could I say something to you? If you read the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, you'll see it very clearly. The reason why Christ became a man is that he might be a sympathetic high priest. We only have one high priest in heaven. What's a high priest? A high priest is one that represents man before God. That's what a high priest is. And our great high priest in heaven is Christ. So that's why you pray to come to God through Jesus Christ. But there's no basis. There's no other priest, high priest in heaven but Jesus Christ. And there's only the high priest is the one that goes to God on a man's behalf. And that's his job as a mediator between man and God. What has happened today is that the church has put all these saints, because the church teaches and they believe, which is false, that these people have extra grace. So this extra grace now is in some kind of a treasury. And you can draw down on that treasury of grace. That is heresy. That's not in the Bible. That's man's doctrine. That's man's teaching. And I would suggest you don't take my word for what I'm saying, sir. Study your Bible for yourself and see if there's any other conclusion that can be reached in that regard. Okay, the last question now. Yeah. When people are preaching in the church for today, uh, what are they doing to people? What are they telling them? Are they telling them what uh, they can do to receive Christ or not? Well, I don't know uh, what church you go to, so I'm not going to speculate that. But the job of a pastor is to expound the Word of God. And that, that not only has to preach on salvation, because you can't preach on salvation every Sunday, although in the invitation you give a word of salvation. But there's so many biblical truths that are there, how to live, what the Bible teaches on on uh, family, what the Bible teaches on um, decision-making, what the Bible teaches on... Um, Interpersonal relationships, what the Bible tells uh, believers uh, dealing with their problems and confrontations. There's so many, th I mean, it's endless themes in the Bible that the pastor preaches on. That's why he goes through from book to book, expounding the Word of God and applying that to our daily living of believers. So his job, the pastor's primary job, is to expound Scripture, explain Scripture, and apply Scripture to the lives of God's people. Um, just, uh, come on, Somebody was playing some music and the hand come on. 
Yeah, so um, the people in them so preaching for today, where I like for today, who preaching about God. When they preaching about God, is the people and listen to them and them tell them about God? Well, whether the people listen or not uh, is immaterial. My job as a pastor is to proclaim the truth of God's Word. I can't make people uh, listen. I can't make people believe. Uh, but I am a messenger, and I must deliver the message. So whether they listen or not, uh, just like the Lord told Isaiah, uh, you'll be preaching for 20 years, or, or, I think it's uh, 40 years Isaiah would preach, and not one person is going to, to respond to you. But nonetheless, you must declare it because I'm going to hold them responsible. The prophet was told in the book of Ezekiel, Son of man, I've set you as a watchman. If I say to the wicked, thou shalt surely die, if you go and warn the wicked and tell him he will surely die and he dies in his sin, you are not responsible. But if I say to the wicked, you shall surely die and you do not warn the wicked, he said that man shall die in his sin and I will hold you accountable for that man's blood. So my job is to absolve myself of guilt and responsibility by declaring the counsel of God to people. My job is not to get them saved. I can't save anybody. Only God can save people. Right, but my job at least is to, to, to discharge my responsibility, which is to witness to them and share with them the gospel and the glad tidings. They have to decide if they respond or not. Yes, you have to talk the truth to them, and when they hear the truth from somebody, who is being the card but you? Well, they never say nobody, but after they realize now that uh, you can't save them now, they go tell you for somebody they meet, well, I guess uh, from the certain person was preaching, and I guess save from him. When they go from the outside now, they never say who saved them, they who saved ever save them, they get saved. Well, let me just, so yeah, let me, make, let me make a word of clarification there. No pastor can save anybody, okay? Jesus Christ is the only one who can save. What a pastor does is to show people what they must do to be saved. And that person goes before God, confesses their sins before God, asks for forgiveness. And that person commits themselves by faith to Jesus Christ. That's what salvation is. But I can't save you. A priest can't save you. The Pope, not even the Pope can save you or save me. It's a personal matter between me and God, confessing my sins, seeking forgiveness, repenting of my sins, and then exercising saving faith in what Christ did on the cross. Because what's going to get you to heaven and I to heaven is going to be, have I put my faith and trust on the work Christ did when he died for my sins on the cross? That is going to be the issue. It's not going to be the issue about what church or what pastor. That's not going to be the issue. It's the way, what am I trusting uh, to get me to heaven? Am I trusting in my good works? Am I trusting in my church? Am I trusting in my pastor? Or am I trusting in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross? That is going to be the final issue. Thank you very much for that call from Antigua. We appreciate you listening. Be sure that you continue listening to That's Truth and continue to the, listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Pastor, we got about two and a half minutes left in tonight's episode. We have had a lot of questions that have come in, and we thank each and every one of you who have sent in your questions. One more question from a listener. They want to get your thoughts on this paragraph. Today, queer folks are hit by poverty much more, much harder than straight men and women. The LB, LGBT poverty rate in the U.S. is 22%, while the straight poverty rate is 16%. To them, the gospel is the hope of an equitable future that we straight people with means should fight for their behalf. Pastor, from a biblical worldview, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I am not too sure why the LBGT group is, is poor. So, that, number one, I am not too sure. What I would say to you is that uh, statistics can be used 
to foster a position to generate sympathy. So I don't know the facts as far as that is concerned. What I would say that the best thing we can do for the LBGT group is not about bringing them out of physical poverty, is to bring them to spiritual truth. Because whether you feed them or not, or whether they get rich or not, believe in me, they're damned. Anyone involved in this kind of group are not saved. Okay, so I need to be very, very clear about that. We're not talking about people. It's a mistake to tell these people that they can be continuing in their sin, rebelling against what God has thought, and they are right with God. That, that's, a, that's an anomaly, okay? So we need to be very, very clear what the issue are. These people need to be saved. And the best thing we can do is to open their eyes to the truth that they deceive themselves and they need their lives to be changed. And the only person that could change their life is Jesus Christ. Because he said, if the Son should set you free, you should be free. And these people are in bondage to their selfish desires and their lust. So I would like to make that very, very clear. Uh, fighting for uh, LBGT people or whatever you fight for, that they should be treated with uh, a sense of dignity that they're made in the image of God but we cannot support what they're doing we, can't, we don't help them by telling them that they were born this way or this is normal we, we put them in a, uh, in a situation where there's no hope because if they're born this way they can't help themselves but we point them to Jesus Christ who can change them and transform them make them new creatures read for Corinthians chapter 6 and such were some of you that's the grace of God is there a particular prayer that I need to pray in the last 30 seconds of the program in order to be saved? Absolutely not. Unless you're going to pray the sinner's prayer and ask God to forgive you, to cleanse you, repent, and ask Christ to become your Savior, uh, that can be done, that transaction. But, uh, you know, Cornelius prayed many years before the truth came to him. So the sinner's prayer would be the prayer that would lead you to Christ. Thank you for listening to That's Truth tonight. Be sure you join us next week for another episode, and we will be continuing our discussion on decision-making. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's Truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.